And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture. Here he is, Michael Savage. Welcome to a special podcast of the Michael Savage Podcast Universe. A few years ago, I interviewed former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, who uh, was a leader of the Labor Party from 1997 until 01, and again from 2007 until 2011. Now, he is a former general as well. He previously held the posts of defense minister and deputy prime minister under Ehud Olmert and then in Benjamin Netanyahu's second government from 07 to 2013. Ehud Barak is a liberal. Does that mean he should not be heard? He's a highly decorated general, former prime minister. He opposes Netanyahu, and he believes that the end game in the Gaza war should be a Palestinian state. He is one of Israel's most important elder statesmen. He opposes Netanyahu, and he has a position that must be listened to. We know that uh, Hamas killed 1,400 innocent people, butchered them, slaughtered them, and they hold hundreds as hostages. But it's a cycle of violence that threatens to paralyze the entire world. I want you to listen to this interview that I did a few years ago in a whole new context because he says the following, I think there is a need in Israel under the heaviest, most difficult conditions never to lose sight of the objective. He said the right way is to look to the two-state solution, not because of justice to the Palestinians, which is not the uppermost on my priorities, but because we have a compelling imperative to disengage from the Palestinians to protect our own security, our own future, our own identity. I want you to listen and decide for yourself what you believe. And remember this, Ehud Barak is no American liberal. I will tell you again, he was a former general, a war hero, prime minister. You may remember the movie Munich. He was one of the Israeli commandos who dressed up in burqas to go into one of the most dangerous places on earth to kill Palestinian terrorists to get even for the Munich slaughter. So this man is the real McCoy, and the fact is that uh, he's not the type of liberal that we get in America. I hope you have a chance to listen to this podcast because I think it's very important that you do so. Thank you for listening. I'm Michael Savage. Savage. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, Prime Minister Barak. Yeah. 
Do you hear me? We are not connected. No, we're connected. Hello, Prime Minister Barack. Yeah, do you hear me? Yes, sir. So, so honored to have you on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. This is a phenomenal day for me because you are a true hero. Uh, politically, we may disagree from here and there, but I have the utmost respect for everything that you stand for. Thank you. Today we're speaking with the 10th Prime Minister of Israel, Ehud Barak, on the Savage Nation. He was a leader of the Labor Party until 2011. He previously had held the post of Minister of Defense and Deputy Prime Minister uh, in Israel. But he's also the most highly decorated soldier in Israel's history, having taken part in many famous battles and combat missions. It's an amazing career, an amazing man, and we're going to begin now. Prime Minister Barak, welcome to the Savage Nation. Thank you for having me. Now, you have long been an advocate for a two-state solution in Israel. Can you explain how this would work? Oh, when, when the situation is right, it will work very, basically, simply. It's, it, it's painful, but simple. We will delineate a line within the, the promised Holy Land, within which we'll have, uh, you know, Israel as we know it, uh, the settlement blocks where 80% of the uh, settlers are living uh, the, uh, together with the Jewish neighborhoods uh, in eastern Jerusalem. And uh, all these areas together do not cover more than 6 or 8% of the um, West Bank, which will be compensated for uh, through certain land swaps. And um, we will have a line within which we will have a uh, solid Jewish majority for generations to come. Beyond it, there will be an area full of Palestinians where uh, we will still control the security event as long as we do not have an uh, acceptable uh, arrangement which, which uh, protects our security. But basically it will be a, a place where the Palestinians can have their viable demilitarized uh, Palestinian state. So that's basically, we will have a wall, uh, they won't pay for it, we will pay for it, but uh, there will be a wall uh, and a border uh, that we hope will be respected, and as the poet Robert Frost once put it, good fences make good neighbors, so this good barrier will uh, help us to cooperate on uh, many issues. It's as, not as a, very far now because the situation is not yet right. But when the time uh, ripe, it will be painful, but relatively or technically simple. Prime Minister, you have recommended a two-state solution going back a long time, haven't you? Yeah, 50, more than 15 years. And, and have any of the Palestinian leaders ever accepted the idea of the Jewish state adjacent to a so-called Palestinian nation? Yeah, yeah, they they uh, they accept the Jewish state for sure. That, that's for uh, I know not at the very beginning when I was a kid and the the seventy years ago the UN General Assembly uh, made the partition uh, plan which uh, ended making a Jewish state and Arab state. Uh, then they rejected an open uh, open uh, war and invited all the Arab 
uh, countries. We won and we will never be apologetic of this. But, uh, and uh, later on, you know, they, uh, Arafat rejected it in uh, 2000, uh, 2000 uh, when mm-hmm. I him together with President Clinton trying to achieve a peace. We, we offered very far-reaching uh, proposal, which might cover metaphorically 95% of whatever he can think of, and ask him to take it as a basis for negotiation. He rejected it to terror, so that's his responsibility. But since then, there is an, uh, um, for 15 years now, there is an Arab League proposal, so the uh, Arabian proposals, which mm. basically are, are proposal to make peace based on the 67 lines, recognize, mm. uh, recognize Israel and so on. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, these are short of perfect plans. We cannot accept them as, as, they, as they are. We have many reservations. But I do not agree that it cannot be a base for, for future negotiation when the Palestinian leadership is right for it. Now, this is all discussed in your incredible book, My Country, My Life, by Ehud Barak, that's just being published, Fighting for Israel's, Fighting for Israel, Searching for Peace. You know, if this were coming from a standard politician who had no military history, people would shrug it off. But it's coming from a war hero, and that is what's most, most intriguing uh, to me. Many people do not understand that you have been there and done that uh, a thousand times over, and one of your main points in this book that I found intri- that I found most intriguing, uh, Mr. Barack, is that you say the democratic principles and the core values of Zionism uh, are are what you're standing for. But you also say that Israel's own security and national interest would dictate that, however long it might take, a two-state solution is the only conceivable destination. Now, many people would argue, and that, that would be mainly Americans, I would assume except perhaps the ultra-Orthodox in Israel as well, that not one hectare of uh, Jewish land should be given to the Palestinians, which I find untenable because there are four million people who don't agree with that position, and they're not going anywhere. But aside from that, how would you prevent a Palestinian nation in the future from wanting what Israel has, which would be an air force and an army? And once, once that air force and army were to be developed, would they not then continue on the footing that they're on now, which is to annihilate the Jewish presence? Oh, it's a complicated uh, question. It might take an hour to uh, to fully answer, but let me put the, the following step. First of all, in Israel, most of people with my background, most of people who spent decades uh, fighting for Israel security, be it in the... In the uh, IDF in the armed forces or in the secret service in Shabak or in the Mossad or in the police, 90% of them believe, like me and I like our, our government, that the objective and the only sustainable uh, arrangement is a, a two-state solution. So that's for one. Second. Oh, well, that's very important for us to hear because we, we don't hear from your side of the, of, the, uh, of the aisle. We only hear from the religious so let's let that go, because as you say, it's far too complicated for a brief interview on the radio, and I know your time is very short. Now, I want to go, if you don't mind, Prime Minister Barack, to um, the shared capital in Jerusalem. When I visited with President Trump in the White House a few weeks ago, I was a guest of his for over 30 minutes, and then with the, the Vice President for 30 minutes. I'm a great supporter of President Trump. However, I've expressed on this program, as of this Monday, that I think the timing was terrible 
to open uh, the embassy and move the embassy to Jerusalem. Do you believe the movement of America's embassy was wise at this time? Yeah, it was wise, important, and we are thankful as Israelis for President Trump for making the decision. It, it had to, to, to happen, to the best of my judgment, 70 years ago, immediately after President Truman recognized, uh, was the first to recognize the newly emerging state of Israel. For sure it had to uh, happen in the last 25 years when a bipartisan uh, resolution in the Congress uh, almost gave an order to, to, to presidents to do it. I think that uh, unlike the uh, urban legend that it should alienate the Palestinians and the Arabs, it does not really exclude the possibility, I would say the certainty, that once the Palestinians come to grips with realities and become ready to strike a deal with us, they will have their own uh, uh, Palestinian state with a capital. Probably the, some suburbs of Jerusalem might be included in the capital that they might call uh, El Quds, which is Jerusalem in Arabic. And uh, for sure, an American embassy will be established there. So I, I don't see the great, great story or the great reason for alienation. And uh, I, I found it symbolic that it happened exactly in the 70th anniversary of the announcement of Israel. And probably the reason for, for a lot of the rage, Palestinian rage, is the fact that this is the day where they celebrate what they call the, the catastrophe, uh, the Nakba, namely the establishment of Israel. Mm -hmm. Old enough to remember, that's what I put to Clinton and Arafat when, when we sat together at Camp David in 2000. I told uh, the president, Mr. President, you had not yet been born, I mean Clinton, but uh, Arafat was a young teenager and I was a kid, and we well remember. After this partition plan at the UN in November 47, uh, to establish two states, Jewish state and Arab state, Ben-Gurion, the founding father of Israel, uh, accepted on behalf of the Zionist movement, he accepted the plan, and the Palestinians rejected it. And the moment Israel came into existence, they invited all the Arab, uh, Arab armies from, from five different armies to try to kill baby Israel before it can stand on its feet. And that's why I told the Clinton, uh, in front of Arafat, we'll never be apologetic, neither about this issue of, of uh, what you call the catastrophe, or uh, not even if for the issue, issue of refugees. Because it's true that 650,000 uh, Arabs left what became Israel, but mm -hmm. the same war, years of war and the two years afterward, 650,000 Jews from all, our, uh, all over the Arab world came into Israel. We never called them refugees, we called them brothers, we absorbed them. And nowadays, uh, a majority of Israelis are the offspring of these um, uh, Jews who uh, were expelled from the Arab world. Savage. The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. Uh, you know, I'm reading your incredible book, My Country, My Life. Again, ladies and gentlemen of the Savage Nation in America and around the world, was speaking with Ehud Barak, who has written an amazing book that I recommend, My Country, My Life. It's more than politics. It's also a personal story of uh, Mr. Barack. But, you know, we're speaking about the shared capital for the moment, and you, you know more about it than I do. What I fear 
is that this became a galvanizing moment for the enemies of Israel, especially Turkey now, which has a sizable military. Do you think that that is more posturing than it is a threat to the survival of Israel? Look, after, after 70 years, seven wars, two intifadas, uh, infinite number of operations in between, Israel, and that's one of our major achievements, is the strongest country thousand miles around Jerusalem, uh, from uh, Benghazi in, in Libya to Tehran, including those two capitals. No single um, uh, uh, enemy or combination of, uh, of neighbors can create a, uh, an existential threat to Israel. Of course, they can harass us, they can uh, cost us loss of life, they can, uh, they can impose a war. You know, usually a war can be imposed by one side. But uh, Israel is strong enough, and I confi I'm confident that out of this uh, position of strength, we should master the self-confidence to be ready to defend ourselves. Uh, Turkey is not an enemy for, for fighting, you know. It's, uh, we have very close uh, economic relationship. Mm. Uh, there are many other interests involved. It's, it's the rhetoric of Erdogan is uh, hard to, to absorb and listen to and should be responded uh, from time to time, but there are too many interests between us and Turkey to, to let it deteriorate into actual war. But uh, that's not true about uh, the Hezbollah in Lebanon or probably some Iranian proxies. But even Iran it, it has a potential in the long term if they come back to develop nuclear weapons and won't be blocked. I, I, I don't see a reason why they shouldn't be blocked. It might gradually develop into a major threat, but as of now, nothing is an existential threat for Israel. So we should stop frightening ourselves. Even the tiny, demilitarized Palestinian state surrounded all around by Israel with such a major player and allegedly even nuclear power. So what the hell the Palestinian state can do to Israel? We, we have much more to, to worry about if it is a failing state, if it becomes something like, uh, like a certain part of Syria or like uh, Iraq at the, uh, in some stages, you know, the, the mm -hmm. area or Somalia, Somaliland. It's, it's, a Palestinian state is, cannot be a real threat to, to Israel. You know, we're speaking again about probably the most important issue in the world, which is the Middle East, which the whole world seems to revolve around and has for a couple of thousand years, with um, Prime Minister Ehud Barak. His great book is My Country, My Life. I recommend it to everyone. And I'd like to continue at this time with the issue of the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, I personally do agree that Trump was right, and destroying the Iran nuclear deal was the right move. What do you think, Mr. Barak? You know, I was uh, in the years 2009 to, uh, up to 2012, I was more hawkish than Netanyahu and Lieberman about the need for Israel to be ready. Uh, but they were part of it, of course. Uh, Bibi supported it as well as Lieberman uh, to, to develop uh, operation capabilities to prepare the ground for international legitimacy for Israel to strike. And uh, when it becomes... Uh, kind of a compelling imperative to, to strike because they are going to to um, enter into a, what I call the zone of immunity where our operation cannot delay it for long enough uh, to be ready to strike on the Iranian uh, nuclear facilities. Uh, but once 
פרזנט אובמה signed a deal, it became a deal, I thought it's a bad deal. You know, when I was asked about it, I, I answered, uh, I have mixed feelings about the uh, Obama deal. I was asked, uh, what do you mean by mixed feelings? I answered, uh, it's like uh, seeing your mother-in-law driving your new BMW over the cliff. <laughs> so, it's really bizarre feeling. But something that, that become, became a reality once the president signed it. The same applies now. Well, I thought that there are more logic ways to deal with the violations of, of, of uh, the Iranians. Basically, they are doing very bad things. But none of them is explicitly a breaking of the deal. You know, developing mm. missiles is an important issue. And it has to do with the nuclear capability. It relates to it. But it's not part of, of the deal, whether we like it or not. Throwing an insurgency or, or a terror all, all over the Middle East is is bad thing, but it's, it's not part of the deal. So more logic approach, in my judgment, was to call upon the Europeans, probably Russia, and together coordinate and appeal to the Iranians uh, to change their behavior or else. Uh, but that is a part of the deal. And you have to remember that, uh, that uh, even when America pulls out of the deal, the deal is still there. Mm. Once uh, President Trump announced it, it's once again, it's part of reality. It's a, a good and bad news in it. The good news mm. are that the Iranians are so afraid, so frightened now. They suspect that uh, President Trump, now with uh, Pompeo on one side and, and Bolton on the other side, um, mm. might, uh, might uh, enter, as they suspect, a period where uh, America will look for the slightest violation or even fabricated mm. violation of the agreement in order mm. to strike on the Iranian nuclear facilities. Mm. The Iranians are so worried about it that they are behaving much more cautiously. We could see it even a few days ago when Israel hit very hard on their uh, deployment in Syria, and they, they didn't respond practically. And mm. they might be very cautious uh, in the coming months as well. Uh, probably the same happened with Kim Jong-un in North Korea. Basically, he completed his uh, acquiring of technology to, to produce both atom bombs and hydrogen bombs. Uh, but he felt that, uh, that the new administration is totally unpredictable. And so... Uh, mm decided better to warm up relationship with the South and mm. to make some announcement that appear to be um, uh, conciliatory. So he, he will dismantle his uh, test site because he doesn't need it anymore. He never said he will dismantle the, the uh, uh, nuclear arsenal or so. Mm. Once again, uh, he's more cautious now. He probably says, let's wait until the midterm, or probably until 2020, and see what happens. Mm. That's what his mm. father did. That's what his grandfather did under a similar situation, and they are very used to it. So I think the, this is the bad news, but there is good news, but that, there are bad news as well. When the uh, summit in Singapore happened next month, probably the 12th of June, if it, if, if it will really happen, uh, the North Korean negotiators will come and raise the question. Does it make sense to sign an agreement with American president if the next president can wake up certain morning and, and decide to cancel it? Mm. 
They might be ways that the Iranians, at a certain point in the future, let's say three or four years from now, they decide to break out and resume enrichment of uranium. At the mm. former, they will argue that the uh, first to break the agreement were the Americans themselves. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. So it's complicated. But, you know, once he did it, it's the reality, and I recommend to, to Daniel and to uh, the people around, the, around uh, Trump, uh, probably Bolton, to sit down behind closed doors and make sure that we, Israel and America, agree about uh, investing a lot, uh, a lot of intelligent resources in order to make sure we will know what happens in Iran then to make sure that we agree of what defines a breakout, what defines a, a run towards a nuclear weapon, and then at what stage and with what parameters or milestones around us, we have to bring back the, the surgical military option, American or Israeli, uh, uh, to the table. Savage. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. We are speaking with the 10th Prime Minister of Israel and the most highly decorated soldier in Israel's history and a scholar, Ehud Barak, and his fabulous uh, book, My Country, My Life. Mr. Barak, you have a chapter entitled Hate Versus Hope, which I think goes to the entire core of our discussion today. How in the world are those of us who support the state of Israel to believe that those who are raised to hate the Jews from the time they are born uh, in certain areas of the Arab world are ever going to learn to embrace their Jewish neighbors? I think it, it, it will start with what, what we call the Iron Wall. Of course, a precondition to, to uh, exist in the Middle East is to be strong, stronger than anyone uh, else around you. This idea was, uh, was uh, shaped by Jabotinsky, who was a right-wing original visionary, and mm -hmm. uh, made as uh, effect by Ben-Gurion and his followers, including Rabin and myself. We built this iron wall. Israel is the strongest, so they can think, they can dream, they can wish, but they cannot destroy Israel. Mm -hmm. There is a certain uh, asymmetry that was identified already by Ben-Gurion between us and our enemies. Israel has to win each and every war. Uh, our enemies have to win, uh, have to win only once. Mm -hmm. So this makes us the party who is interested in uh, being ready to defeat any enemy when we are attacked. But uh, because we develop, advanced, even strengthened during those long intervals between wars, we have a strong interest to delay wars. Because after any war, there will come the next one. So we are not interested in many wars. So. You cannot easily translate or transform the behavior of beliefs. The Middle East is a, is a tough neighborhood. There's no mercy for the weak, no second opportunity for those who cannot defend themselves. Mm. The Middle East is very different from the Midwest. And, <laughs> um, they, but no person can choose his parents. They are whoever they were. And no mm. nation can choose its neighbors. They are whoever they are. Mm. And uh, we have to settle but I am optimist. We are stronger. So now we have to master the political will to search for opportunities to uh, relaxate the situation. Unlike what you might hear, that the Arabs are the same Arabs and no hope and nothing can happen. It's not true. 
In 67, 50 years ago, I was a young captain when we conquered all, the, defeated three Arab uh, armies in, within six days. Uh, our government thought that except for Jerusalem, the rest of the territories that we acquired will be deposit for peace negotiation. But the Arab uh, gathered, the Arab League in, in uh, 60, uh, in uh, 67, late 67, and decided on the famous three no's, no recognition, no negotiation, no peace with Israel, whatever was taken out by force will be brought back by force. But a lot has been changed since then. We have, for 40 years, we have a peace with the strongest and most important Arab country named uh, Egypt. It stood even when Israeli tanks rolled into a neighboring uh, Arab capital in Beirut um, uh, several decades ago. It stood even when Muslim Brotherhood, Morsi, took over Egypt. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, uh, it's not like the peace that you have with Canada, but it's something very stable. So you also now have a great ally in Saudi Arabia, which is quite unbelievable. And this is wonderful, <laughs> given that Trump has reached out to Saudi Arabia. You now have two of the strongest Arab nations on earth as your allies. Isn't that true? Yeah, we, we have, you know, they are not exactly allies, but there is an opportunity here, which in a way we are missing, we are not doing it intensively enough, to establish a, a regional arrangement with the Gulf states, with uh, Saudi Arabia, with Egypt, with Jordan, based on the common interests to, to neutralize or put at bay the Iranian hegemonic and nuclear tension, as well as struggling together against radical Muslim terror and uh, join hands in other projects. So we have a lot of common interests, but it won't fly if Israel is not ready to take certain steps towards the Palestinians. Not because MBS or MBZ or, or Sisi or, or King Abdullah uh, are in love affair with the Palestinians, but their publics are. And mm -hmm. those moderate leaders do not feel safe in their own seats. As, and engage publicly in Israel, accept Israel, the normalized relation with Israel, as long as the Palestinians, as they describe it, are under Israeli books. So uh, we have to think of it in a more wider perspective. It will take time, but I am optimist. When you go to, to Northern Ireland, you see what happened in Belfast. No one believed that it could be solved. It is Absolutely. about to be solved. Go to Bosnia or Serbia, former Yugoslavia. These are conflicts of hundreds of years that no one believed yes. could be solved, and they are on the way to be solved. Yes. Once we started, and I, I told people, I wrote it in my book as well, uh, even if it takes 5, 15, or 50 years, I said, uh, what, when the time will come to make the deal, you will need magnifying glass to see the differences between what was on the table already in 2000 at Camp David and what uh, ended up to be the real uh, agreement. I, think that I know that your time is very, very short. We're speaking with uh, Prime Minister Ehud Barak with his amazing book, My Country, My Life, which you really should read if you want to know anything about the Middle East. I have one last question, which is you're very critical in your book about the right-wing government, which you say is chipping away at the core principles that founded the state of Israel. Could you elaborate on that for a moment? Yeah, look, uh, first of all, I should uh, tell you, it's, uh, it's my government, it's really elected government, it's a legitimate government of Israel, led by Netanyahu, uh, whom I know from, from the time I was 20 years old, young lieutenant under my command, and, uh, uh, and I'm the only one who defeated him in the ballot some 20 years ago, <laughs> but he came again and served as Minister of Defense. 
So I have no doubt that uh, this government is patriotic. They want what's good for Israel as, as well as I uh, do. But I think that they are wrong. And the main, uh, main mistake is the belief, kind of, uh, I call it the belief with a messianic tinge that uh, Israel is uh, having a, a sacred mission to, to t- get over the whole biblical uh, land in one state. And the reality is painful but simple. Over this area between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean, a small piece of area, uh, there, there live uh, 13 million people, 6.5 million Jews and 6.5 million Arabs. So if all this block of Palestinians can vote for the Knesset, uh, it will become immediately uh, binational state, in short time, binational state with Muslim majority and uh, permanent civil war. If they cannot vote, if block of millions of Palestinians permanently cannot vote, that's not democracy. So the one-state idea leads inevitably into either non-Jewish or non-democratic state. Neither is the Zionist dream. And I insist that the better way for Israel is, however painful it is, is to be capable of delineating this line within the Holy Land and um, uh, make a place for, for a Palestinian entity. It serves the security of Israel rather than risk it. And it's not cancelling the right. We, the right we have from history, from heaven, from the Bible, from the community of, of nations in the last hundred years. But the question to what extent you implement your rights has to do with a common sense, with sober uh, look into reality and capacity to come to grip with it. And it happened even in the, the biblical time, even during the dynasty of David and Solomon, kings, our old kings, the, the, the promise and the right and the, the divine promise for the control of the whole land was there. But the actual borders uh, were looked like accordion based on the uh, concrete geopolitical uh, reality. I really want to thank you for being with us on the Savage Nation because I think you've made the case for your position much more clear to Americans who are 100% in support of Israel, meaning Israel right or wrong, and the religious community in America, the ultra-religious community, are those who, not only in Israel, but in America, are insisting upon all or nothing, meaning 100% uh, biblical, 100% Jewish, and you're saying that's an untenable situation, isn't that right? Yeah, unfortunately it's right. We would be happy if there was uh, somehow an, an empty land for, uh, for a people without a, a state. But it's not an empty land. There are millions mm. of Palestinians there, whether we like it or not. And they are not mm. going to disappear. They are human beings. I'm, uh, my yes. position does not stem from the need of justice for the Palestinians. It stems from our, my deep worry mm. and anxiety about uh, our own future, our own security, our own identity. It's mm. in order to defend ourselves. We need a border within which we will have a solid Jewish majority for generations to come. And we cannot rely just on uh, divine intervention. I know that many believers are listening, and they are confident that at the right point uh, the divine intervention will come. But we have 
as the lessons from the two cases of destructions of our temples and our sovereign mm. uh, continuity in the land of Israel, the lessons are written in the Talmud. Don't accelerate the Messiah. He knows his... his <laughs> don't try here on earth to act as if he doesn't have enough... Uh, he's too patient and you want to prod him into action. Secondly, don't climb the wall, we call it. Don't challenge the biggest powers of the time, as we did with the Babylonians and later on with the Romans. And third, avoid at any price a hatred among brothers within the people of Israel. And somehow I stick to these lessons of the Talmud, and our government seems sometimes to ignore them, or at least behave as if the, these principles deserve being ignored. Well, again, I recommend to all of my listeners in, in, in America and around the world, you must read My Country, My Life, Mehu Barak, because these positions, if expressed by a typical dove or a peacenik in America, would be rejected by the, uh, let us say, more nationalistic amongst my audience. But coming from you, it's a different story entirely. Having been a prime minister and a war hero and fought in so many wars, what you have personally lived through, what you're—I'm reading your biography. It's astounding, which we can't even get into. To read that your paternal grandparents, God rest their soul, Frida and Reuven Brog, murdered uh, in, in northern Lithuania, leaving your father orphaned at the age of two. I think all of the, these issues have shaped you into the 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 statesman and warrior that that you are. And coming from you, it has a different meaning than coming from, let's say, a typical peacenik. So the last question of the day, and I know that you have to do other interviews, would be, what is the likelihood, in your opinion, given the climate of today, given the fact that there are no term limits in Israel, which I find astounding. Uh, great Benjamin Netanyahu has been prime minister for a very long time. What is the likelihood of Israel ever moving, in the, not ever, but moving in the near future to the vision that you have of a two-state solution? It's not. It's not clear. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it needs a change in uh, power in Israel. And it's done only through the ballot. You know, we are a democracy, as you are. Uh, so one of my purposes is to try to wake up the people to to become, make the people uh, be aware of this development. In fact, I have a lot of empathy to to Netanyahu. He's not a lightweight. He's a sincere person. Uh, thoughtful, knowledgeable, and uh, with many achievements. But I think that he's wrong, and in the recent um, years, he's somehow uh, led or dragged into uh, dangerous policies by the extreme right wing in Israel, and he became too, too pessimist, passive, anxious, and self-victimized. Uh, and uh, I think that this should be corrected Hopefully he will do it alone. He has a lot of troubles, as, as President Trump says uh, here with, with um, investigation, that for him I hope it will end up with nothing, but it's not clear how it will end. But basically without change in the direction in government in Israel, it probably will not happen. But I should tell you honestly that even on the other side, on the Palestinian side, I don't see the great readiness or rightness for it. Just recently we had... We heard Abu Mazen, declining leader with a anti-Semitist slogans, uh, filling a, a whole speech of himself. 
that's that's an easy situation, but I am confident that the time to for turnaround will come. We have been through a lot of uh, troubles in our long history along the millenniums and the short history along the last 70 or 120 years, and we will uh, overcome at certain point our great people uh, will come to grip with reality and realize that there is a need for, for change of direction. You know, the last line in your book, My Country, My Life, is a quote from Theodore Herzl that you quote, which I'd like to quote on the radio show right now, which is, if you will it, it is not a dream. And I think that's your motto, is it not? Yeah, in a way. It's a motto of Zionism all along the way. <coughs> in the last uh, 120 years, and, uh, when he said it, he said, within uh, 50 years we can have a Jewish state, Judenstadt, he called it, uh, not a Jewish state, but state for the Jews. And uh, he said, if you if you uh, would believe it, it, it won't be a dream. And it happened exactly 50 years after he made his first statement in Basel in 1897. Again, ladies and gentlemen, I recommend the book, My Country, My Life, by Ehud Barak. Mr. Barak, thank you very much for being with us on The Savage Nation. I think that your positions will set off shockwaves, not only amongst my audience, and we're going to argue over this, a little later on in the program, but for weeks to come, and I appreciate uh, your being with us. Are you are you visiting with President Trump on this trip? Oh no, way? happened to meet with all American presidents since Ford, but not yet with President Trump. Why, why why is that? Why do you think that is? Oh, I think the reason is that I'm not uh, neither the Prime Minister now nor the Minister of Defense, so he's supposed to meet with uh, with the formal elected leaders of the state. I see. Okay, we'll leave it at that because I'm not Prime Minister nor Director of Defense and yet I visited with him. I think he should visit with you. In fact, after this interview, I will tell you right now with your permission, I'm going to send a video, an audio copy of this interview to the White House. What do you think of that? Okay. You can also uh, always do it. Yeah. Thank you very much uh, for having me. Good luck with your book. Bye now. Savage. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and you'll learn something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this. If you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? Please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.